Good morning, Grace Life Church. How's everybody doing today? Open up your Bibles to Romans 9. Keep them open there. My name's Tommy. I'm one of the lead, well, I am the lead pastor here. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you're here today. And uh, if this is your first time here, you stepped into the middle of a, a series called God's Sovereign Plan, and we're going through Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going through the entire book, um, but we're calling this little, well, it's not short. These three chapters is kind of a sub-series in the whole book of Romans, and uh, I want to pray before we start, and then we'll dive in together, okay? Lord, it's, a, it's an intimidating thing to, to stand in a pulpit and presume to speak for you with the delegated authority that you've given me. I, I stand as a, as a creature, a, as a man. I feel my weakness today. I feel my creatureliness, Lord. I feel fatigue and intimidation, Lord, just standing in front of a passage like this. People that are wrestling with it, grappling with it, asking for, for you to illuminate their minds and hearts, for it to take root. Lord, this is a part of your word. We don't run from it. We don't uh, embellish any part of Scripture or twist it to, to fit our, our needs, Lord, or, or to become easier for us to digest. All Scripture is profitable. We believe that, Lord. We've experienced that. And we know there are treasure. There are treasures and gems awaiting our discovery and exploration here. Help us to do that together. Help us to humble ourselves before your word, Lord. These, these are truths that are hard to receive if we misunderstand them, Lord, but they're not hard to understand. It's very clear, Lord, you are a God who is enthroned above all. You are free. You are uninfluenced. You do not ask leave or permission from your creatures. You sit above all, sovereign and majestic and powerful, and yet you're, you're trustworthy, Lord. You're reliable. You're dependable. You have shown us that. You sent your son to show us what the father is like and how he is working out his redemptive plan in the world. Thank you for that. So open our eyes now, Lord. Help us to see wonderful things. We know they're there. Help us to see them. Protect us, Lord, from any misunderstandings or anything harmful or misleading that I would say, Lord. I'm a man. I, I surrender myself entirely to your spirit and to your word. Come and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone once said that the uh, proper aim, the proper aim of preaching is to mediate meetings with God. To mediate meetings with God. In other words, the reason that we are here today is to encounter God. And part of what we're called to do, is, in a strange sense, is to steward the presence of God. There's a stewardship that's been entrusted to us today with God's presence. How we spend our time. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, he's with the Lord now. He said this in the middle of the 1900s uh, in England. He said, I'm convinced that the reason a lot of people go to church on Sunday is precisely so that they can go back home when they're done. And what he meant by that, it sounds strange to our American ears, what he meant by that is people go to church to check a box. They don't really realize why they're there. Why don't we go to church? My mom and dad went to church. My brothers and sisters went to church. I go to church too. I don't really know why I'm there. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? You're here today to meet with God, right? You are here to encounter God. If we can't do that here, then it's just a waste of time. On a cold morning like this, man, we can brew our own coffee at home and have all kinds of goody snacks, right? No, we came here to corporately encounter God. There's something significant and powerful and dynamic that happens here amongst God's people, happens here in a unique way that it doesn't happen out there. That's why God has called us together to encounter him, to worship him, and to stir one another up to love and good works. We're here to mediate meetings with God, and this is just, this is not about a man imparting information to you it's not less than that because we are we're going to talk about words and facts and and truths propositional truth statements it's not less than that it's it's much more than that there was a book that i read on preaching once um, from a man that, that i admire he's a great preacher and he was talking about the people who take notes during the sermon which can be a helpful exercise he said this he he said he never minded people taking notes it never bothered him but that he would often watch and wonder as the sermon progressed as people put down their pens and worshiped 
And I thought, that's cool. And now look, those two realities aren't mutually exclusive. You can, some people worship as they write. For some people, that is worship. I know a few people, that they process things by writing. But, but that idea, that image stuck in my mind. Uh, you know, we're trying to get all the information out. It's just information. And sometimes if, if we're not careful, we miss being lost in wonder and adoration. That, that's my prayer, man, is that we float out of here every Sunday. We get so lost and so caught up and the wonder of God's grace that we leave here with a deeper, more accurate appreciation and admiration of it. That's worship, man. That's what worship is. And so my prayer is that we would engage with God. That's the, the title and the hope and prayer and purpose of this entire series in Romans, so that we could engage with God. We understand who God is, and in that light, and only in that light, do we truly understand who we are. So we engage with God, so we can engage with ourselves, get right with God, confess our sins, grow deeper in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and then we can engage with other people, right? We're in community together. And then we can, in turn, go out there and, and seek to reach a world that is just so lost, hopelessly lost in, in darkness and sins and captivity and blindness, and we can engage them. That's our mission field. It's not the enemy. It's the mission field, Right? So engage with God, engage with yourself, engage with one another, and engage with the lost and dying world. That's the whole purpose of being here. We gather to be edified, we scatter to evangelize. It's the way the Bible shows that, to mediate meetings with God. So that's my prayer for every single person here and every single person watching from home, or even if this is a, you're watching the recorded version of this, this has already happened. That's kind of mind-blowing. Somebody's watching this right now, and it's already happened. Mind-blown, right? That you, that you would would have an encounter with God. Uh, let me read this quote. Maybe this will be some kindling, some kindling we can throw on the fire. Uh, one of my favorite books is written by a worship leader. I was skeptical, no offense, worship leaders, but I thought this is just going to be like catchy little sayings thrown together. It was one of the deepest, most profound books uh, that I've ever read on beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It was called, the book's called Look and Live, and it's, it's when the, the serpents crawled into the camp of the Israelites. Man, that's eerie, isn't it? Their hearts were hardened. They were rebellious. They murmured against God, against Moses. So God sent serpents into the camp, and they crawled into the camp, and they bit people. Can you imagine anything worse than that? And they were venomous serpents. <laughs> yeah, amen, brother. They were venomous serpents, and they bit the people, and their poison was taking root, and people were dying. And they were crying out to God for mercy. And because God has none, he didn't hear them. No, that's not what happened at all. God's a merciful God. They deserve what they got, and much worse. But God is compassionate, and he heard them. And he told Moses, hey, go raise up this, this uh, serpent that you create on a pole, and everyone who looks at the, the serpent will live. And so all the Israelites who were bitten and were dying, they were dying, okay? Because of their sin, they were dying. And they went and looked up on this thing that was lifted up on a pole. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they were told, if you look at this, you'll live. You got to look. You, gotta, you know, there were probably some Israelites who were dying. They said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Snakes, desert, wilderness. I don't even know who, where Moses is. No, I'm not going to look. And that's stupid. And they died in their sins, right? But some people, with the eyes of faith, looked, they beheld, and they were healed. That whole book is, is about that. This is what he says. He says, the triune God is the only thing large enough and interesting enough to bear the weight of glory and ultimately bear the weight of our worship. Anything else will break your heart. Anybody want to testify to that? Anything else will break your heart. You put the weight of your worship on anything else in this world, that's created, and you're going to crash and burn because nothing else in this world can hold up the weight of your expectations and worship. You'll break it, and you'll break yourself. That's what he says. Anything else will break your heart. Money isn't secure enough. Sex isn't thrilling enough. Entertainment isn't impressive enough. Music isn't interesting enough. Food isn't satisfying enough. People aren't reliable enough. This world isn't good enough. This sermon won't be good enough, by the way. Let me just throw that in there to manage expectations, okay? Creation isn't permanent enough. We were created by God and for God, and until we understand that, we are restless, 
brokenhearted glory chasers, always seeking something more. Only God, the highest and greatest good, the infinite holy one, is finally enough. Where do you go for glory? I like that. I like that book. You should get it if you like books like that. It's good. So, we're continuing from last week. I never finish sermons, it seems like. And we had a, a really simple outline. Here was the outline from Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. God is. The, the title of the message was Let God Be God. And I took that from a book that was basically a debate between one of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, and a Roman Catholic who was a humanist called Erasmus. They were writing back and forth. Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, and Erasmus wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And Erasmus argued that man is noble, he's good, he's benevolent, he can will what is, what is morally acceptable, and he can uh, basically choose righteousness for himself, even in his darkened, fallen dead state and Luther said no man's will is in bondage it's bound and man can only and always act according to his nature and his nature is fallen no man seeks after God there are none righteous no not one so these two people went back and forth and at some point in those letters Luther said to Erasmus he said three things the first thing he said was Erasmus your thoughts of God are too human you're, you're treating God as if he's just like you bound by the same rules that you are and responds and reacts the same way you do. The second thing he said was that a God that depends on man is not a God of all, at all. And the third thing he said was, Erasmus, let God be God. <laughs> let God be God. And I've titled this part of Romans 9, Let God be God. Because we have to. This is jarring a little bit, isn't it? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Does that unsettle you a little bit to hear that? I told you when I was a kid growing up, I was never allowed to say the word hate unless it was I hate the devil and I hate sin. My mom let me say those words. I couldn't say I hate my brother, I hate my life, I hate my job, I hate anything else, right? So when we hear the word hate used by God, man, it's rattling, it's jarring, it's off-putting. We already talked about what that word means. It means a preference, right? I've chose Jacob, I've selected Jacob, I've preferred Jacob over Esau. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 14, when Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, even your own life. What did he mean by that? Did he mean hate your mom and dad so you can be a Christian? Not, not in the sense of unrighteous indignation like an emotion that we have that's fallen. No, he meant preference. If you're faced with a choice, your mom or your dad or me, it's got to be me, Jesus says. He demands absolute loyalty. And that's the word, same Greek word that he used when he said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. But we have a hard time with that. This whole idea, friends, of sovereignty, we struggle with that. We grapple with that because let me just walk in the light with you. Here's why. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I think as Westerners, as Americans, we struggle with it because in our, in our history and maybe even in our own personal experience, sovereignty, and that word means God is sovereign. That means he can do Whatever he chooses to do without your permission uh, or without your agreement or without your feedback, right? So to us, sovereignty means tyranny. Am I true? We fight against that idea. We think anybody who has absolute control is a bad thing. It never ends well. I mean, after all, uh, what do we celebrate every July 4th? Independence from what? What we believed was a tyrannical government that we escaped from so we could have freedoms here, right? This is woven into the fabric of even the founding of our nation, the Constitution. How many branches of government do we learn there are in elementary school? Three. Why not one? Why not one? Just get, listen, put a person on a throne and give them all the power they want. Surely it'll go well, right? No, so, we, no, legislative, executive, and judicial, and they, and they compete against one another, to keep what we call checks and balances. See, we have that idea. Anybody who has absolute control is a bad thing, whether it's at the government level, whether it's even at my family level. I don't want anybody to be in control and in charge of my family. That could be bad news. So it either equals tyranny or it equals abuse or something else. We don't like that idea at all. We fight against it. 
We want our freedom. We want our independence. We want autonomy. And so what we have to grapple with, and some of you have emailed me, have called me, have pulled me aside. I love that. Man, I love this church. This is so awesome. This is the first time in eight years I have ever been able to preach on these doctrines because I have to, really. <laughs> I mean, I want to, but I have to. You can't skip from Romans 8 to Romans 12, nor should you. Shouldn't do that. That would be wrong. All Scripture is profitable. Paul's giving us good food here, deep theology, right? So what we have to, when we're grappling with this, what we have to come to terms with is that God being sovereign is not a bad thing for us. It's a good thing for us, right? In whose hands would you rather the salvation of the world be in? Yours, theirs, or God's? And listen, we can argue about it standing up or in a classroom or with a pen behind our ear, but when we're on our knees praying for somebody we care about to be saved, can't we just all agree that we're acknowledging by our very prayer God's sovereign? You ever pray this way, Lord, I pray, I pray for my brother Billy. Lord, he is a tough nut to crack. And, and he's stubborn and he's willful and he's angry and he's obstinate. So Lord, will you do all you can? Don't violate his will. Don't do anything that he's not going to let you do. Who prays that way? We're like, God, get him. <laughs> get him, Lord. Chase him. Overcome him with your grace. Open his eyes. Right? We want God to be sovereign when we pray for somebody we care about. You better hope God is sovereign. Like I've said, this doctrine has created some of the most death-defying, radical missionaries and evangelists and Christian movement leaders, men and women, the world has ever seen. Thank God for it. So grapple with it. Wrestle with it. This is a safe place to do that. But listen, what you don't want to do is scrap the idea of God being sovereign. Then you're going to have major issues, major issues. In fact, I told you last week, the way this section opens in verse 14, Paul says, what should we say? Then, by the way, that's point one. I'm sorry. Uh, last week, I tried to finish point one. God is worthy of our highest thoughts. So he, he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. They were twins, they had the same mommy, they had the same daddy, they had the same worldview, they had the same upbringing, the same religious history, and God chose one over the other. And the one that he chose makes you scratch your head. You're like, really? God, Jacob, the cheat, the trickster, the usurper, he seems like the bad egg. Are you sure, God? Esau seems like a good old boy. He hunts, he fishes, come on. Uh, God chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau, he passed over Esau, and and it says, before the children were born, before they had done anything either good or evil. So that really blows our mind. Before these people were even in existence in the world, in time and space, God had already selected one according to purposes within himself. We don't know why. Why Jacob and why Esau? The answer is, I don't know, and neither do you. And if somebody else tells you they know, they're lying. <laughs> because it says here, check this out. It says uh, in verse 15, a little bit further down, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on, on whom? God. It depends on God. See, the reason God unconditionally elects some and passes over others has got nothing to do with them. Jacob and Esau weren't born didn't do anything good, didn't do anything evil. You say, well, God looked through time. but So he looked through time and saw them doing something good and something evil. That doesn't help the case. That's, that's still a condition, right? He says, before they had done anything good or anything evil, so that, so that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. What is that purpose? We don't know. Don't know. It's, but I know this. It's nothing within them that caused God to choose them. It's something in him. And it's not arbitrary. God doesn't go any, many, mighty, mo, pick a sinner by the toe. He doesn't say that. It's, it's based on God and God alone. That's point one. He's worthy of our highest thoughts. What shall we say then? This is Paul inviting us to think more deeply about God. What should we say then? He's just taken us on a little mini tour of all the patriarchs, right? Of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, look how God has 
acted redemptively throughout history. Isn't it strange? Isn't it shocking? Isn't it surprising? Isn't it good news? What shall we say about these things? He wants you to think more deeply. He wants you to think more deeply. This is what Spurgeon said once about this. Let, let me say this first. What we're engaging is, is, is theology, the study of God. And this is good for you. This, is, this causes us to grow. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis, his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, there's a, I think it's the Prince Caspian book. There's a scene in there where Aslan uh, walks up and Lucy, the little girl, she sees him. And this is a couple years after the, the first book was written. So she's, she's got a history with him and she sees him and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Remember this? He says, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are? And he says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That, that is C.S. Lewis's mysterious way of explaining and describing sanctification. We're growing deeper in the grace and knowledge of God. You are seeing God, he seems bigger to us, more majestic. Grace seems more precious to us. Our salvation seems more amazing to us. And we're left in wonder and awe. One of the people that filled out the one word prayer request this year put, for this year, my prayer, my hope, my desire is for God to make me more in awe than I was last year. This is how God does that, right? I grew up uh, on a farm, and my dad worked at the John Deere tractor store. He was the parts department manager. He, he worked there almost three decades, and the same person owned the John Deere parts store that owned Chevrolet Olds. It was a car dealership connected with a, a John Deere store and connected to a tractor supply store. So they sold tractors, they sold cars, and it, it, when, I could, when I was old enough to walk, pretty much, my dad would let me and my brother come up there, and they would pay us to weed eat, to wash cars, to wash tractors. It was a, I had the best childhood in, in the world, and I loved my dad so much to give me that experience. But there were, there were diesel mechanics that worked there. Cliff, I think of you a lot, man. Where are you at? Where's Cliff? I, I, I just, I love being around mechanics, man. And, and uh, these guys, we would get to have breaks with them and eat lunch with them. And they would always try, I don't know why, they would always try to get me and my brother to drink coffee. And here's what they would say. They would say, hey, kid, drink this stuff. This would put hair on your chest. Anybody ever say that to you? It never, you know, it never did, man. I was so disappointed. I'm just not a hairy man. But what they were trying to tell me in their own way was, you got to grow up. you got to do what men do. you got to drink coffee and probably some other stuff, right? And I was like, ah, I'm good. I'll just eat my bologna sandwich. Thanks. Uh, but when, when we see God as he really is, we grow. And it's almost imperceptible. You grow deeper. So many people have felt like the introduction to, this, to, to these truths and realities about God and their salvation has matured them and grown them. This is what Spurgeon said about it. Okay, check this out. He said, I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. That's how I feel. When I discovered the, the truths, the realities, the doctrines that are being described in Romans 9, I felt like, man, you know, I, I used to think of poor God, you know, it, he, he needs us so badly. And, you know, I grew up in a church and there'd be a, an altar call given at the end, of the end of the service and they would play some of the hymns like Just As I Am and the preacher. I felt like the preacher would beg us, please, please come down. God needs you so, but that's not what he said, but that's what I felt. I felt sorry. I felt sorry for the preacher. I felt sorry for God because we were a little church and I think everybody there was saved already and hardly anybody ever went up and I just felt bad. I felt like, man, our church is so tiny and, and God just wants us so badly. He just wants more people and goodness, his hands are tied and I wish I could do something for God, man, to help him out. I really felt that way growing up. I know that's totally misconstrued and, construed and not accurate, um, but man, when I came to these doctrines, and I saw, oh, oh, my friend, you've misunderstood God. God. God doesn't need you. He wants you. God wants you. Praise God, he wants me, right? Somebody does, finally. But he doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. He didn't create you because he was lonely. I don't know if you've heard that story. 
No, God created you because he wanted an audience to display his glory to, right? And to shower his affection with and to share his creation with. Not because he was lonely, not because he was in some kind of a need, had this fallen innate need that you could meet. But I felt like I grew up when I came to these doctrines and, and saw God as he truly was. So uh, the first point was he's inviting us. What shall we say to these things? He's inviting us to have worthy thoughts of God. The second point, second point is this. God is way more merciful than we think. Check out verses 15 and 16 here. I think I, I think I have it here. No, that's not it. Getting closer. There we go. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I mean, what, what Paul is saying, by the way, this is, I mentioned this last week. This is the test. This is the test. If you try to explain away God's sovereignty and salvation by saying either that God looked through the corridor as a time uh, or this is some other version. God looked down and saw there were some good things in some people. He saw that person. He said, man, they're all right. You know, they just look like a dirty shoe. They just need to be shined a little bit. I've heard that before. And I thought, what? <laughs> or he picked this one just because he has such great potential. Or this one, he just felt sorry for this one. Um, if you explain away unconditional election, then you're going to have to explain away this objection that Paul anticipates. If you hear, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, and it bothers you a little bit, you think, man, that doesn't sound right, that doesn't sound fair to me, then I would say you're on the right path because Paul anticipated you thinking that way. Don't you love the Bible? He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then he says in the strongest possible way in Greek that you can say, no way, no way. He says, certainly not. Perish the thought. May it never be. And then he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then in verse 16, he says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Some translations say it's not on him who wills or on, on him who runs, but on God who shows mercy. So here's what's interesting to me. I pointed this out last week and we had to stop. Ran out of time. He says, is there injustice with God? Certainly not. And then he starts talking about two Old Testament examples. He's talked about the patriarchs already. Now he's going to talk about Two figures in the Old Testament that are unforgettable. Moses and Pharaoh. Moses and Pharaoh. He starts with, with Moses. He's quoting from Exodus 34. And, and, and the context there is Moses has just came down from the mountain and, and found all the children of Israel engaged in idolatry. Do you remember this? It says the children rose up to play. They were down there worshiping a false god, right? They made Aaron take their earrings and their gold and throw it into the fire and fashion a God uh, of their own imagination. And they said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. We don't even know what happened to Moses. He's been up on the mountain 40 days. So let's continue. And Moses came down from the mountain, and lo and behold, an idolatrous uh, pagan festival, a party was going on. And so God's, God's wrath burned hot that day. And you remember how many Israelites were consumed? Anybody remember? There were over a million Israelites that God brought from Egypt and they brought them to the base of Mount Sinai and they committed idolatry right off the bat. When Moses was up there getting revelation from the God who had rescued them and delivered them, they committed gross idolatry and that day God destroyed 3,000 Israelites. Does that sound like a lot to you out of a million? 3,000, only 3,000 died. And so Moses is, is shaken to his core. He's shaken. And he's like, Lord, what are we going to do? There's sin in the camp here. We're a stubborn and a stiff-necked people, and yet we've got a long way to go. You're going to bring us to this promised land, and now you're mad at us. So I need to meet with you. I need to figure out who you really are. You're, you and I need to meet, and you need to reveal your true essence, who you really are. I want, us, I want you to show me your glory. You remember that prayer? Moses said, God, you've got to show me who you are. I want to see your glory. And so God reveals himself in chapter 34 to Moses. He has to hide Moses, remember? He says, hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass before you. I'm going to manifest my name, my covenant personal name, Yahweh. And as God passes by Moses, he says what Paul is quoting here in chapter 34 of Exodus. He said, the Lord, the Lord, gracious 
and merciful and compassionate and slow in anger and forgiving iniquity. Isn't that interesting? God, Moses is worried. Man, man, God must be this capricious, fly off the, the handle, unpredictable God. So I need to know who God really is. And God says, I'll show you my glory. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I am sl uh, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the essence of who God is. Now, that's interesting to me that Paul quotes that right on the hills of anticipating an objection where we say God is unjust, God is unfair. And Paul says, uh, no, I know you're thinking that. I know you're thinking that way, so I'm going to show you this is who God really is. Isn't that interesting? It seems like Paul is pulling the, wool, the, he's pulling the rug out from under our feet. He's changing the subject, but he's not. He's not. Paul is telling us you're not really thinking about this the right way. We tend to hear that, hey, God showed favor to somebody. God showed mercy to somebody. He showed compassion to somebody. And he passed over somebody else, so that's not fair. We say that all the time. Our flesh, man, rises up. Our inner lawyer gets up in our uh, midst and protests. God can't do that. That's not right. And Paul says you should probably think, rethink, your idea of justice. Remember this? We just barely scratched the surface last week. God basically, if I may be so bold to say this, when human beings rebelled and sinned against God, humanly speaking, he could do three things, right? If you can think of a fourth option, come talk to me after the service, because I thought really long and hard on this, and R.C. Spro helped me a little bit, so. <clears throat> yeah, so he could have done three things. Number one, God could have saved nobody. Now, I'll, I have a question for you. Put your thinking hats on. Let's say Adam and Eve sinned. They did. God told them not to. He warned them. They didn't listen. He told them, you're going to die eventually if you eat of this tree, and you will die spiritually the day that you eat of it. And they did, and they did, right? Could God had, have cast them into eternal judgment forever? Could God have done that? Yes. Would that have been just had God done that? Say it louder. Yes. Would God have had done them any wrong if he had done that? No. Is that what God did? No. What did God do? He showed them mercy. He covered them, which was a picture of our atonement, of God covering our sins and removing ultimately our sins with a substitute, the Lamb of God. I'm sure the animal he used was, was a sheep. It doesn't say that, but you're pretty sure it was, right? That's the first death in the Bible we read of, is the death of an animal. God slaughtered an animal, part of his good creation, because of what human beings did to wreck it. He covered them with the skin of the animal. He had mercy. So we know that option A wasn't an option. That's not what God did. God could have saved everybody from the creation of the world and the fall until now. Has God done that? No, we know that, right? Judas Iscariot went to his place, right? There was a, a curse upon Cain. I could go through all, all the, the pictures in the Old Testament. And we read all those very clear scriptures about uh, a place called hell of eternal torment. And there are people who will, will reject Christ and they will be sent there. It's a terrible, terrible reality. So God uh, could have saved nobody. He didn't choose that option. He could have saved everybody. He didn't choose that option. He chose option C. He saved some. He saved some. So here's what, here's what happens to us. Since God didn't have to save anybody, he chose to save some people, but we get all bent out of shape when we read a passage like this because we say, that's not fair. God has to save everybody. And we're not talking about justice anymore when we argue that way, are we? No. If God did what was just, what would he do? Say, option A. That would be just, that would be fair. There's a story that R.C. Sproul tells that may be helpful. He talks about the time he was a professor at a seminary. And he gave tests, and he gave assignments, and he gave papers. And the people grumbled, the students grumbled. He said, no, no, just do it. Cite the resources. Do it the way I told you to format it. Leave your footnotes. And he said, sure enough, man, the day that it was due, I mean, he gave them all kinds of, of time to do it. And sure enough, the day that the paper was due, some people in the class, they didn't have it. And he said, I warned you, I gave you time, I helped you, the library's over there, you have all the resources you need. How in the world 
Do you have the audacity to show up and say, I didn't, my, my assignment's not ready? How dare you? And they said, please, professor, please, we're so sorry. We'll turn it in tomorrow. And he said, all right, all right, I'll tell you what. I'll give you till tomorrow. 8 a.m., this paper better be turned in. And they turned it in, and everything was great. And then he gave another assignment a little bit later in that semester. And, and, and that, because human beings are, are so grateful when they're shown mercy, everybody turned it in on time, right? No, uh-uh, uh-uh. What did people start to presume about their professor? The due date's technically on Thursday, but you know Prof, man. He's so full of grace. He's easy. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Have an all-nighter, hang out, do whatever you want to do. He'll, he'll go easy. So what happened a second time? They showed up. They didn't have it ready, and he was a pushover. He said, all right, all right, I'll, I'll tell, you, tell you what. Over half the class this time, half the class this time, didn't have it ready. He gave him to the next day. And then the third time in that semester that he gave him a paper, and they showed up, and over three-quarters of the class didn't have the assignment. Because <laughs> that's what we're like, right? That's what, that's what we manipulate the situation and take advantage. And R.C. Spro, the people that didn't have their paper on time, he said, you know what? He said, that, that, that's an F. You're going to get an F. And he said, instantly, everybody in the class rose up. And what did they say? That's not fair. That's not fair. You can't do that. How dare you? And he said, fair? You want fair? I'll tell you what. All three papers retroactively from this day forward that you didn't turn in on time. I wrote down. I wrote down who didn't. You get F's for all of that. You want justice? You got justice. That's what it, he wrote that in his book, I believe, Chosen by God, trying to help people understand. We are so far off the mark. When we start talking about God showing mercy, showing compass, compassion to people, and we get all bent out of shape, we have a very selective memory. Very selective. We, we think of, of uh, stories in the Bible like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, man, how could God do that? How could God destroy an entire city because of immorality and iniquity and, and, and exceeding wickedness? How could God do that? We forget, we forget that Abraham was praying and begging God, look, if there's 40 people there that are righteous, would you not destroy it? And God says, I'd save it for 40. How about 30, God? Don't be angry. <laughs> I'd save it for 30. How about 20? Okay, 20. How about 10? You remember this? How about 10? God was merciful. He was merciful. There were no righteous people in that city except for one person, Lot. And to even get him out of the city was like an act of Congress, right? He thought that the angels were joking when they came to rescue him and his wife turned around and looked, longing after the, the sinful culture there and turned into a pillar of salt. So we remember Sodom and Gomorrah and we say, what a severe God. Do you remember Nineveh though? See, we forget Nineveh, don't we? Nineveh was one of the biggest cities you ever read of in the Old Testament. Did you know that God saved that entire city? Do you know, do you remember the Ninevites? Do you remember how, how barbaric they were? Do you know what, did I say Israelites? Ninevites. Okay, thank you. Man, I must be with it today. Must have been that second cup of coffee. I usually get all those things confused. The, the Ninevites, they had a, a new and novel ways of torture in order to intimidate their opponent into submitting. They didn't like fighting. They would rather just show up on your doorstep and say, hey, give us the throne, the scepter, your king, uh, and, his, and his harem, and, and, and then we'll go... We'll, Everything will be peaceful. But the, they, would, they would show up and they would demand that. And then when the people wouldn't do it, you know what they would do? They would cut their ears off. They would cut their nose off. They would cut their heads off. And I'm sorry, it's a little bit graphic. Nineveh was a terrible place. Terrible people. And God told Jonah, a, Nineveh, a prophet of Israel. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and, and speak to it the message that I will give you. And what did Jonah say? No way. I ain't doing it. I ain't going there. People, people think, listen, listen to me. People think Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was scared. That's not why, though. That's not why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. This is, about, this is going to blow your mind. Do you want to know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because he hated them. He hated the Ninevites. There was a terrible history with Israel and Nineveh. They had destroyed and been terrorist to, all, to, to the Israelites throughout their history. I'm going to read to you. I, I didn't put it on the overhead here. I'm going to have to find the book of Jonah. <laughs> here we go. See? Found it. This is, this is what Jonah said. 
So eventually, you know, Jonah ran. He ran away from God. By the way, if you really believe in free will, read the book of Jonah. It'll help set you straight. God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, of my own free will, I'm not going. God said, fine, go wherever you want to go. He sent a fish. He sent a storm. (laughs) Anyway, I'm not trying to be clever. I'm just saying. So eventually, guess what? Jonah went to Nineveh. (laughs) And he preached a message. 40 days and you're toast. And guess what happened? The whole city of Nineveh, from the king to the lowest servant, repented in dust and ashcloth and, and, and gave their heart to God. They became God-fearing Gentile worshipers. How about that? And, and, and guess, guess what the reaction was that Jonah had? He was so happy, man, that God saved sinners, right? No, you want to know why Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh? Check this out. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and resenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Did you know that was in the Bible? You know why Jonah didn't want, to go to, didn't want to go to Nineveh? He was afraid God would show mercy and compassion and save Nineveh, which is exactly what God did. So we have a short memory when it comes to God being compassionate. We think, Adam and Eve, we, we think man, look, Adam and Eve, and, and uh, they were kicked out of the garden. Yeah, but they were rescued from their sin. They were clothed with an animal. We think, uh, Cain and Abel, look at that. God warned Cain, didn't he? He warned Cain. He said, look, if you do well... Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, it will go well with you. But if not, sin is lying at the door and it's desirous for you to consume you. Turn from it. Cain didn't listen. Right? We, th- we think of the flood. Like God destroyed the whole world with a flood. Well, not technically the whole world. Or we wouldn't be here, right? God saved eight souls. Noah found, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God saved eight people. And then the, the Tower of Babel. Man, that was so severe. God, was it? He let them live. He changed their language. That was actually merciful of God to scatter them. It's not good when a bunch of human beings are all united in the rebellion against God. So God shut that down. He scattered them. He changed their language. We have such a short memory when it comes to God's grace, don't we? God is so much more merciful than we could ever imagine. So much more gracious than we can ever imagine. He is. but we still, we still protest. There's, there's a, I preached on this once when I was, uh, I think it's been a couple years ago. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is again facing legalism from the religious leaders. And so he told them a parable about workers in a vineyard. Do you remember this parable? It said a man came to harvest his vineyard at harvest time and as was often the case in that Middle Eastern climate and culture, he needed help. There was a plentiful harvest. He didn't have enough hired hands. So he sent the foreman out to the local Home Depot to go hire some workers, right? Things don't change the same way back then as it was now. And it was the first hour of the day, and he found plenty of people, able-bodied men holding up signs, hey, we'll work for food. And he said, hey, come to the vineyard. Uh, and they haggled with him over a price. He said, all right, I'll pay you a Daenerys. You come and work all day, and I'll pay you a Daenerys. And they shook hands on it, right? And uh, so they went back. They worked. But you know what? The work was daunting. More work to be done. So the, the foreman went back a couple of more times, and eventually he came back when there was only one hour of sunlight left to work. Think of that. One hour left, and he found some people still standing around idle, and he hired them, and he said, hey, come and work, and I'll pay you what's right at the end of the day. And they came. And then as the parable goes, everything seems normal up to that point. And then there's this shocking, surprising, offensive twist to the parable. Because Jesus knew the people in his day are just like us, and we don't understand grace. We get all bent out of shape because we don't think that God operates uh, justly and fairly the way we see it. And so at the end of the workday, the owner of the vineyard told the foreman, hey, look, I want you to pay everybody who worked, start Start with the workers who work last, pay them first. I want everybody to see it. 
which seems kind of twisted to us, but it's not. There was a point. So you remember the story. The workers who worked for one hour were paid a denarius, which is a full day's wage. And the ones that worked all day were wringing their hands. They're like, oh boy, man, he's going to put a bonus in our pockets. But he didn't. He didn't put a bonus in their pocket. He put one denarius in their pocket, and they went nuts. You're, how can you do that? They were, we bore the heat of the day. I mean, to us, we get it. This, doesn't that seem wrong to you? We bore the heat of the day. I mean, they worked an hour. They didn't even sweat. It was the coolest part of the day. And, and the owner said this. Check this out. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. You can underline that in Matthew 20, verse 13. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the idea, man, is that the kingdom of God is upside down and backwards and counterintuitive to us. God doesn't operate the way that, the way that we think he should. It gets us bent out of shape. That's because God is much more merciful than we could ever imagine. We would never devise a salvation scheme like that, would we? We would do it like every false religion in the world does. There's something good and noble and redemptive about you. You have such incredible potential. God's going to pick you. And then who gets the glory for that? Well, you do. But God's scheme of salvation strips every human being of all boasts. The Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me that I am the Lord. And then Galatians 6.14, he says, God forbid that we should boast, except that we boast only in the cross. We're to boast only in the cross. That's strange, to be boasting in the most humiliating and, and torturous device for execution and shameful and humiliating that the world has ever seen. We boast in that because that's our salvation. God's way of salvation strips human beings of all boasting and pride. And just because I don't want you to think this is the only place that this is taught, check this out. Here's a couple of other verses. And then we're going to have to close for the day. John 1, 11 through 13 says this of Jesus coming into the world as God's Messiah. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then check this out, verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the same thing that we find here in Romans chapter 9. It's all God. All of it is God. And here's the Apostle Paul in another place. Philippians chapter 2, he says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to what? Will and to work for his good pleasure. You say, but wait a minute, Pastor, I, I believe the gospel. Yes, you did. Who should you thank for that? Were you clever enough? Were you wise enough? Did you resurrect your dead heart? Did you open your blind eyes? Did you give power to your, to your lame spiritual body? No, you didn't. God did that. Here's another quote I want to read you. Just because I want to squeeze all I can in today. <laughs> yeah, you got to say that, man. And then you're looking at your clock saying, Cracker Barrel, baby, come on. I didn't put the quote in here. That's okay. I'll read it next time. But let me, let me just tease out the last point, okay? Tease out the last point. Here's the last point. And, and this is going to require a whole sermon. It, it is. Who laughed? <laughs> Not only is God worthy of our highest thoughts, way more merciful than we think, God wants to demonstrate his power. Now look at this. Look at the last part of this 17 and 18. I want to read it to you. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then we're going to move into, we've already talked about Moses. Now we're going to talk about Pharaoh and the Exodus. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. That means brought you onto the stage of world history as a villain. That I might show my power in you. 
What's God want to do? Show his power. That's what God wants to do. Have you ever read, a, has anybody in here ever read a book, a novel, watched a movie that was worth its weight in salt that did not have a villain in it? Anybody? Somebody share with me a plot that's interesting, that has no villain and no hero, no conflict, no antagonist, no protagonist, and I will show you a, a book that's destined to flop. It's going to be a one on Rotten Tomatoes, or it may be in the negatives, I don't know. It'll never make it to the blockbuster list, okay? God wants to demonstrate his power. How can God do that? How in the world is God going to demonstrate to us his power? Well, there has to be a villain, right? There has to be an antagonist. And we see that all throughout the Bible. There's Satan, there's Pharaoh, there's the Antichrist, there's Pilate, there's Herod. There's always a villain, right? That doesn't mean that God's the author of sin. He's not. The Bible says that. That doesn't mean that God tempted those people. He did not. James 1 says God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. All God did was, was remove his restraint. And let me keep reading this here. Okay, verse 17. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, here's the conclusion of this section. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that, to many people, is just as unsettling and bothersome as Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Because you're saying, okay, so, so God loves some people and hates others, and so God shows mercy to some people, and he hardens other people. I don't like that. That's the word in Greek from which we get the word sclerosis. You know what that means? It's a disease that some people have where there is a thickening and a hardening of their tissue. That's where we get that word in Greek. That's what happened to Pharaoh. Now, I just want to say this, and then we're going to be done for the day, okay? Just to help you as you wrestle with this all week. <laughs> help you frame your... Uh, Frame the way you think about it. When, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh, go back and read the story of, of, of the Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh after the sixth plague, okay? The first six plagues, who hardened Pharaoh? Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh. How many, how many opportunities did God give Pharaoh to repent and obey? Ten. He gave him ten. Um... Ten plagues. How many plagues would you have? I mean, what bothers people is they think, man, gosh, Pharaoh's just this noble character. He's just, man, he's just, he's, just a, he's just a king. It's hard in Egypt. It's hard to be Pharaoh, man. It's just, it's a hot climate. <laughs> and he's there, and he's got all these slaves that he's kept in bondage and in captivity. And, man, they're just trying to make bricks with straw. And, my goodness, man, people are so hard on Pharaoh. And he, remember what, Pharaoh was a terrible tyrant. He was killing babies, having them thrown into the Nile River so that the slave population would be kept under control. And God sent Moses and Aaron with a message to Pharaoh. And he said, hey, thus says the Lord, it's time. Let my people go. Let them go, Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh say? Remember what he said? He said, who's the Lord that I should obey him? I neither know the Lord, nor will I obey his voice. Let his people go. Go away, Moses and, and Aaron. You're making the people idle. Now I'm going to impose the same quota on them, but I'm not giving them straw to make their bricks. So Pharaoh was obstinate. He was stubborn. He was hardened. He was angry at God. He would not obey. He had sclerosis already. It was a pre-existing condition. When God, when God hardens somebody, he doesn't introduce something new to them or engineer evil. God takes what is already there and releases it. He says this. He says this in Romans chapter 1. I think I mentioned this to you last week, just in passing. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it says, Because they, because they know about God, his, his, all of his attributes have been manifested. They're without excuse. They know there's a God. They know he's glorious. They know they should be thankful and honor him, but they refuse. They suppress that knowledge. They suppress it, they push it down, they reject it. Because of that, God gave them over. He says that three times in Romans 1. Men should have known better. They're without excuse. They rejected God, they became idolatrous, they fashioned all these 
false gods and goddesses out of animals and out of metal and out of wood. And so the Bible says God gave them over. He said, if that's what you want, then have at it. That's how God hardens people. The whole reason that this is in the Bible is a cautionary tale to you and me. And I can close with this. Friends, sometimes when we get so stubborn and obstinate and so resistant toward God's mercy and God's grace and God's will, we can become so defiant that God says, you know what? Have it your way then. I'm done with you. That's a scary thought. That scares us. That should scare us. That's what God did to Pharaoh. That's what he did to the people in Romans chapter 1. I told you last week, it's a compound Greek word. He gave them over. Paradidomi. It's to hand over to judgment. I did a uh, very last thing, I promise. One of my assignments in seminary was, was the book of Romans. And I did a word study. I wrote a paper on it. Because this has always fascinated me. What does paradidomi mean? What does it mean for God to give people over? That scared me to death. It did then, it still does. And, and here's the word picture for paradidomi in the Bible. It mean, here's the word picture. Imagine that there's a swift current. Did I say this last week? Okay. Some of you said yes because you wanted me to close. Who, who said that? Imagine a swift current of water, okay? It's swift. There's a canoe in there. There's a center in the canoe. And he's paddling, not against the current, with the current. He wants to go where the current is going to take him. He wants to go over the waterfall. He knows it's there. He doesn't care. He's an adrenaline junkie, man. He wants to go over it. He's had five Red Bulls. He just wants to do his thing. Imagine a force that has hold of that canoe and is holding it, restraining it, keeping it back because of the imminent danger and destruction that awaits it. And the center is saying, stop, let me go, I want to go. And the center turns around and starts hitting that force with the paddle. And imagine that force turning loose and saying, have it your way then. That's paradidomy. If that helps you a little bit, understand what God did to Pharaoh. God didn't create evil in Pharaoh. He didn't tempt Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh exactly what Pharaoh wanted. He said, thy will be done then, Pharaoh. Go your way. The lights shall remain turned off for you. I didn't turn them off. You did. I'm just leaving them off. That's what it means to harden your heart. And every time that phrase is used in the New Testament, it's a warning. Do not harden your heart, Hebrews says, the way that the Israelites did. And miss the day of grace. It's a warning for all of us. And there's a lot more to be said about that, which is why you should keep coming back to this Roman series. And you shouldn't harden your heart. God is merciful. But you do not know, friends... You do not know when you have out the day of God's mercy. Do not harden your heart and do not delay. God is patient, but God's patience has limits. Don't test the Lord. Don't test the Lord. People say, well, there was a thief on the cross. I mean, that's a deathbed conversion. Sure there was. And J.C. Ryle says, there was one thief on the cross so that none may despair. There was only one thief on the cross so that none may presume. Don't presume on God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience. It is staggering. It is astonishing. It is who you are. It is the essence of who you are. When Moses asked you to show you, to show him <laughs> your glory, you passed in front of him and you said the words, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Showing mercy to thousands, pardoning thousands. Lord, you are a pardoning God. Who is a pardoning God like you? Forgive us, Lord, when we harden our hearts, when we grow stubborn and resistant and impenitent and we test you over and over and over. Forgive us, Lord. Show mercy to us. There are more depths to your mercy than there are drops of water in the ocean, Lord. You are rich in mercy. You have, you have a wealth of mercy. Would you please dispense it, Lord, to us today? We pray the bold way that Moses prayed. Show us your glory. Deepen our appreciation and gratitude for your salvation, Lord. And I pray for though all of us here, no doubt, people, every single person in this building who's a Christian, and every single Christian watching from home has an unbeliever in mind right now that they're praying, God, show your mercy. Show your mercy. Don't let this person go. Don't turn them over, Lord. Don't give them what they want. Show them your grace. Show them the face of Christ. May they look and live like those Israelites who were bitten by the venomous serpents. Lord, we, all of us, 
had the venomous poison of sin in our, in our spiritual veins, and it's going to kill us unless we turn and look. And you have told us, Lord, you will never turn away. There is no such thing as a willing sinner and an unwilling Savior. You will never turn away any who come to you with a humble and a contrite heart who cry out to you for mercy and grace. Show that grace today as we close out our service in Jesus' name. Amen.